0: If you have your Bibles, if you just quickly open them up to Romans, uh, Romans chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 24 and 26, Romans chapter 3, and put your finger there and then come back over to Romans chapter 1, okay, so find Romans chapter 3, please, I know I'm asking a lot, Romans chapter 3, put your finger or something there, and, uh, and then come back over to Romans chapter 1, it's not that far, for most of you it's just one page, all right, um, I've titled our, our message this morning that I'm going to already been sitting here in the front pew on Communion Sunday. It's important not to be roughshod or cavalier about the Communion observance portion of the service, but uh, um, also with the limited time we have, I'm excited to share a perspective on this passage in Scripture um, that, that I, I think will greatly impact us and will glorify God. All right, uh, I titled our study this morning redemption. God's demonstration of righteousness, redemption. God's demonstration of righteousness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, is with the moments we have remaining in the service. I pray that we would um, be uplifted, encouraged, challenged, humbled uh, by the passage that we look at from your perspective. Lord, help us to gain, indeed, just that, your perspective of your scriptures on our life. Help us see with eyes that are, that are humble, that are awake, that are wide open to what you have for us this morning. May hearts be changed, softened, challenged, convicted, as you deem necessary. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's work in, in, in providing understanding of your scriptures. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, the, the righteous of God is certainly demonstrated in the gospel, is it not? The gospel being the good news of Jesus' provision of salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the good news, the gospel. When we speak of the good news, we're speaking of salvation provided by Jesus. And God's righteousness is displayed, is put on marvelous display through the whole of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What historically life-changing for eternity words those are, the just shall live by faith. Through the gospel, God's righteousness, His perfection, His holiness is put on divine display through the gospel. It's also put on display when we look at God's righteous and holy judgment of sin. When God in a holy and perfect way, judges sin, which is contrary to his nature, which, helps, which maintains his righteousness when he judges sin, we see his righteousness on display. You look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through chapter 3 and up to verse 20, you see this display of God's righteousness and how he lovingly and holily deals with sin. We can also see God's righteousness by His provision for man's salvation. This is what we remember around the Lord's table as we have this morning. The righteousness of of God is displayed in His provision for man's salvation. When Jesus took upon Him our sin and He suffered God's righteous wrath in my place, I should die for my sin is what the Bible says. I should die for my sin. All sinners earn the wages of their sin, which is death. So the scriptures say. But Jesus. But Jesus death in our place is a marvelous display, not only a provision of salvation for us, but it's a marvelous display of the very righteousness of God. The righteousness, or the righteous God is. The God, the God of the Bible, creator of the universe, the righteous God requires for eternal life. His requirement for eternal life has been provided by him in a righteous way. And in God's redemption of condemned sinners, that was you and me, we were condemned sinners. In God's redemption of sinners, his righteousness is publicly displayed. Now come over to Romans chapter 3, please, and let me try and give you an abbreviated version where my mind and heart has been in preparation for this morning, okay? I'm going to kind of do this as we go this morning, so you can pray for me and exercise patience, if you will. In, In a few days, I've had to be able to spend away with some dear friends, with my son James. You heard about the scorpion incident. We got to go hunting in the mountains and spend some time away and be refreshed. I don't know if James calls that being refreshed. (laughs) We had a good time together. Visiting with those other brothers, a pastor and a deacon of another church that I was going hunting with. A lot of the conversation during the week was about perspective. Isn't life all about perspective in some ways? perspective is a big deal in life and how we evaluate life and the happenings and going ons of life. One of the accounts I shared with the men was something I was recently listening to or reading. Is it, If it's a podcast, is it actually reading? Are you listening? You know, like a book on audio? I've been recently intrigued and interested in reading and learning about early Western American settlement history. There's a lot of what happens in society today that we can understand with the right perspective of early American history. There was an account that helps us understand a little bit of perspective, if you'll bear with me for a moment, of some early Western settlers, somewhere around in, in, in like the, eight, the, the mid-1870s. There was an elite group of trappers who sought to make a living in the early West when there wasn't much but the Native Americans and them in the West There was a time of agreeing on different territories, which was given to the natives for them to be on, the Native Americans, which was allowed for the white settlers to come in and to use, and so on and so forth. And there's all sorts of debatable history and accounts of that. Well, these settlers had had crossed into the set-aside Native American territory, and they began to trap, and they were elite trappers. They had... Um, at, the no, at, at the known time, they had state-of-the-art rifles and firepower. They were known to be well-defended, and they had formed themselves a fortified location in the Great Plains and the, somewhere in the west. We'll call it somewhere around South Dakota, somewhere around that time, or in that area. And they'd set up this this, this fortified location, and the, the local tribes and nations, the Native Americans, upset that they had overstepped their bounds, and they were in their land, and they were hunting and trapping their land. They formed an alliance, and they began to create a siege on this group of Western American trapping settlers. And the story goes from the, the, the American settlers' perspective on history, was that in the, in the rush and the siege on this, this barricaded location, these elite trappers in their firepower had almost immediately taken kind of a Hail Mary shot and taken out the chief of these tribes at some hundreds and hundreds of yards distance. And all the other natives at the time, the Native Americans, were discouraged that their leader had been taken out, and they all turned around and they left. And so American history at that time is recorded by many as a wonderful victory by the American settlers. But there's another perspective on all that. See, the Native American writers of history and accounts of histories told the story this way. The same situation was going on, and on the way to fight at the, at the um, this fortified location, the chief did something that the chief was not supposed to do by Native American understanding. Going into battle, it was said that you were never to shoot another animal, especially a skunk, which he did. And so the Native Americans tell the story is on the way into battle, he cavalier-like turned and put an arrow through a skunk and the rest of the natives said oh that's not good that's a bad omen no, no 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 we're gonna lose now we're gonna lose 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 and when the battle started and that bullet struck and the chief was taken out they knew it was because he had shot a skunk and they all turned and went home discouraged do you see how the different perspectives on history change what may or may not have taken place One says it was a great victory because of that single shot that discouraged everybody. And the others say, no, 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 it's because he did something that would have ruined our chances to win. But depending on who tells the story, and more importantly, from what perspective, we see different facts. Each of us views life from a certain perspective. And that perspective is shaped in part by our experiences in life. An American historian may certainly view things differently than a Native American historian. And our perspective has everything to do with how we understand history. Romans chapter 3 reminds us of history. The very real historical account of Jesus Christ going to the cross And dying and shedding his blood for the penalty as an atoning work for sinners. And as this history is being told, we often view it from the perspective of, listen to this, we view this reality often from the perspective of the fulfillment of our need. The provision of our need. I need a Savior, and so Jesus came and died. I need salvation, and so God has offered it. I need God's love, and He has shown it to me. And these things are true, but that perspective focuses all on the fulfillment of my need. Not all wrong, but what's interesting here, folks, I think is exciting, is in Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter. Before, unlike Paul has done in any of the preceding passages in Scripture in Romans, Paul turns the perspective of our redemption from God's perspective. And When we look from God's perspective, we see that redemption is all about a display of the righteousness of God God displays his perfect righteousness while demonstrating to us salvation do you see the greatness of God and all of this the expansion of, and, re, and reality of our thought and understanding this is what Paul does with this passage As men, we see God's provision of righteousness from a human perspective often. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 all the way up to verse 20 of chapter 3 is thought of in terms of, of, of our need of righteousness. And, and Romans chapter 3 verse 21-26 as I just mentioned is seen as God's provision of righteousness to meet our need. But here, this is what I want us to focus on in short this, even, this morning. Here Paul writes of the doctrine of salvation from God's point of view. God's perspective. Man's salvation through God's provision of righteousness becomes here only a secondary theme that's right the way that the author paul writes romans 3:21 through 24 is that our redemption is secondary what's in the spotlight god's righteousness he is righteous to redeem sinners. And this redemption brings glory, it brings praise, and all the focus is on righteous and holy God when he redeems us to him. The primary theme is the redemption. Of God in this redemption is God's righteousness. And so the death of Christ on the cross is, is understood in many different ways. And, and and the way that history is told of the death of Christ is many different ways. But here Paul points everything, puts a spotlight on God alone in his righteousness. So let's consider very quickly and carefully the righteousness of God that that, that demonstrated uh, that is demonstrated in our redemption. And do all this from God's point of view. Verse, verse 24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, there are three, three major elements in understanding the word redemption. Pastor Chris earlier this morning during the song portion of the service mentioned and, and gave a brief definition of redemption. And he was right. It is a purchasing out of the slave market. But let me quickly show you these three elements. In the New Testament, we see that Scripture uses three different words in the original language, translated as redeemed or redemption. And each of these words adds a new element to the understanding, a full understanding of redemption, which Paul is giving here even a fuller understanding of redemption in this passage before us. So here's the first of three. In Revelation chapter 5, let me turn over there and read that to you real quick. Revelation chapter 5, and verse 9, we see an example of this in the New Testament. Where the scripture says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou hast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation.'" This word here re, uh, used in the New Testament, Revelation 5, 9, that we see as redeemed in English here, is this idea of purchasing, listen, through the payment of a price. Purchasing, an exchange that takes place. We just sang about this in this wonderful hymn. Oh, wonderful exchange, this purchasing through the payment of price. Now, to redeem means more than just to purchase with the payment of price. So here's another. Here's a secondary understanding. Go over to Galatians. Um, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses another um, term in understanding, or excuse me, uses the same uh, word to help give us another element of understanding of this. If you go over to Galatians, some of you that have your, uh, your electronic devices, you're so quicker than I am. I'm not using my iPad. and You can just swipe and you're right there. But if you look at Galatians chapter 3, it's it's helpful to understand the usage here. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. Christ hath redeemed us. The The word usage here, redeemed, this uses the added meaning of not just being purchased, not alone just being purchased or exchanged, but to be purchased out of something. So not just you were once owned by this master and now you're owned by this master, but you're taken out of the captivity, you're taken out of the slave, um, the, the enslavement of that master, you're being removed from one place to another, being purchased out of, removed from one place to another. That's the second element, and here's the third Go over to 1 Peter, here's another element that we use, and I'm, I'm not giving you a whole lot of context of these passages here, but just showing you the word usage here. 1 Peter chapter 1, familiar passage, verses 18 and 19, we see another usage here, the third element of this word, redeemed. 1 Peter 1. Eighteen and nineteen says, "For as much as you know that ye are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver or gold for your vain conversation received by tradition from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, redeemed, redemption. What is the third element? The third element here is that it involves the aspect of a liberation, to be to be uh, loosed of." Of, of bonds or shackles, to be, to be unshackled, to be, to be freed. Freed for what purpose? Freed to serve and live as God has intended us to live. As free servants of Him. This is the third element of the word redemption. So how does this all help us? Now go back to Romans and see. And what Paul does in chapter 3 in this divine perspective of God's display of righteousness, he shows us in chapter 3 of Romans a culmination of all these three elements of redemption. He uses a culmination of all these definitions and then expands on it all at the same time in the word that he uses here in Romans 3. We've seen these three elements of the word redeemed. I've shown you a little overview of these. And the purchase through the payment of a price with a removal, which results in a freedom or liberty. That's what we've seen so far, to understand redemption. This is, this is the understanding of redemption. But then in verse 24, Paul uses yet another form of the word, which is quite similar to the third form we saw used in, and we just read 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 18. But this word Paul uses now includes all these elements. And here's the word redemption. In this text, Paul is using the dramatic meaning of buying back by the payment of a ransom price. Buying us back by the payment of a ransom price. A replacement payment. Death had to happen. Payment had to be made. It wasn't a holding back wrath. It was a repositioning wrath on the one in our place, namely Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. This word here uses all of these elements together. All three elements are involved when Paul uses this word here. And up till chapter 3 in the book of Romans, in this letter that Paul has written, Paul has clearly laid out for us that all are, are in need of redemption. This is what God's holy word says. Every one of us are in need of this redemption. But how is this accomplished? Well, God provides the righteousness of his Son. He provides through the righteousness of his Son, Received by faith, so that men may be justified in his sight. By the word, what does is, what, what is the word justified mean? What is it to be justified? This term here has the understanding in context of the passage, understanding what Paul is saying. To be justified means to be declared righteous. Not to be made righteous, but to be declared righteous because of the atoning work of Jesus on our behalf. God looks down and he sees the righteousness of Jesus, not the sinfulness of man. God declared Dave Swope in all of his sinfulness righteous because of the grace of God and my faith in him undeserving. God's righteousness is on display in the redemption of lost souls. God is righteous. God is righteous. This leads us to verse 25, where we see God's demonstration of righteousness through the source of redemption. Verse 25 says, whom God hath set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of god we see secondly the source of redemption paul writes the redemption of 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 guilty sinners is in christ jesus no one else nothing else Only Christ Jesus. The the one who pays the price, purchases us and frees us, liberating us from the dominion of sin is Jesus Christ alone. Now this was a high price for it was the very precious blood of the sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that was shed on the cross of Calvary. His death on the cross for the remission of sin. That's why we refer to it as a substitutionary sacrificial death. It was a willing sacrifice of his life that served as our scapegoat, our substitute for what we righteously, or excuse me, justly deserve. Christ did this because the wages of sin is death, and he paid that price. God did not overlook sin. God... Cannot remain righteous and overlook sin. God did not overlook our sin. In order to deal with sin, He is righteous and judging sin. And in His long suffering and in His love and in His plan, that I don't understand why, He displays His righteousness in extending to us salvation through the sacrifice of His very Son. My only answer to understand that is God is righteous and I don't understand why. Oh, but I am thankful. I am thankful. And so as a result of that death, verse 25 says, God has displayed him publicly as, note the word, propitiation. Now, a propitiation, you might jot this down, means by which justice is satisfied. Wrath satisfying. Wrath absorbing. Picture wrath being poured out of a pitcher, and as it's being poured down, the object that the propitiation is the sponge, Jesus Christ, that absorbs all of God's righteous wrath, sucks it all in, and absorbs every bit of it so that we don't experience that wrath that's poured out by God. Jesus is the wrath absorbing, wrath satisfying propitiation for my sin. This is what Jesus serves as. First John chapter 2 and verse 2 uses the very same word where the apostle John writes, and he is the propitiation, speaking of Jesus alone. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Offered. Freely to all. And so we understand that Christ's work is sufficient for the whole world, but it is only effective for those who place their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. So we even heard testimony of this morning. You know, the Old Testament equivalent of the word propitiation is mercy seat. You know this, you remember this, right? In the Old Testament. So the mercy seat was what? It was the lid of the ark of the covenant. It was the mercy seat. It was the lid of the ark. And so once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest sprinkled the mercy seat with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. For what purpose and to what end? Well, by this, the errors of the high priest and the people were atoned for. When Christ made the propitiation for our sins, you know what the difference was? He went all the way. It wasn't a temporal covering. It was finished. It was finished. He not only covered the sins, but did away with them completely. His blood is the price that was paid for our redemption. It was Christ's sacrifice that satisfied the righteous wrath of God. He was the propitiation. Because God is is a righteous God, it means that God requires payment for sin. This is what theology of the Bible teaches. This is what God shows us through His Word. Because He is righteous, He requires judgment of sin, which is death. And this leads us to verses, well, the last part of verse twenty-five and verse six, if you'll notice with me, which demonstrate God's righteousness. You see, at Calvary, righteousness was much more than provided. It was displayed divinely and demonstrated for us to see. So that we might, through our redemption, observe clearly the righteousness of God through His provision. Look at the last part of verse 25, please. to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, verse 26, to declare, that is to to justify, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Lastly, we land and, and, and close on understanding our need for redemption. You know, the finished work of Christ declares God's righteousness in the remission of sin. That are past, the sins are past, and the sins that are future. And this past is referring to the sins committed before Christ's death. By the way, what happens to the Old Testament saints How do we know that they would be with the Lord forever in heaven? How do we know that their sins are forgiven when they died before Christ shed His blood on Calvary? What happens then? How could God do this righteously? A sinless substitute wasn't yet sacrificed. Although Christ had not yet died. God knew he would die. It was his plan that he would die. And he saved men on the basis in the Old Testament period of time, and economy of God. He saved men on the basis of the still future work of Christ. All throughout history, mankind, we'll use the word, was saved on the basis of faith in God. Faith in christ always on faith so in other words old testament were say old testament saints were saved on credit of what christ surely was going to do they looked forward to calvary where this morning we demonstrate our looking back on calvary This is what Paul means when he says, For the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. God did not overlook sin. He would be unrighteous to do so. Do you realize that? In his righteousness, God did not overlook sin, but rather saved based on the sure future event of the cross. Dear friend, sin is never ignored by God. Be sure your sins will find you out. God knows every sin of every heart through all of time. And in his righteousness, he does not turn a blind eye, but he provides the propitiation for that righteous wrath of sin. Jesus Christ. Do you see the display of God's righteousness? in the provision for our needed salvation. How can God declare a man or woman righteous? How can, he, how can he justify them today? Because someone has paid the price of sin. When a sinner turns to Jesus Christ for salvation, and when that sinner trusts Jesus Christ alone and recognizes that Christ has paid for their sin and death, and and he or she in faith trusts his work, God then declares that sinner righteous, justifying that sinner in that moment. In doing this, God is just, because the penalty was paid for by the redemption of the Son of God. Because of God's righteousness, Redemption is needed for the sinner. Do you hear that? Because God is righteous, we need redemption. And through redemption of sinful man, God's righteousness is demonstrated. It's displayed. God says, look at me. Look at what I have done. And we say, you indeed are righteous. We see a pure form in Revelation 5 of a worship of God in heaven in future time, where all praise, all glory is on him because he is righteous and worthy of all our living, of all our giving, of all our praise, the righteousness of God in fulfilling our need. Of salvation. The basis for justification is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. By the bloodshed and death of Christ, God can now declare a sinner righteous. Unrighteous. Declared righteous. That shouldn't happen. But because of God's righteousness, because of his unconditional love, it can. And it has been. The theme of this text, dear Christian, the theme of Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21 to the end of the chapter, is not the provision of redemption. But the theme and the spotlight is the demonstration of the righteousness of God in redeeming sinners. Let's keep the spotlight on the one that deserves all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory. Our salvation is not the end result of redemption. God's demonstration of righteousness is. Do you see how God's divine perspective as the Apostle Paul, led by the Spirit, wrote us to focus on is all about God? Doesn't that sound like easy believism? It's all about God. It's true. It is all about God and His righteousness, and His display. Romans chapter 3 portrays God's provision of righteousness from the perspective of fixing our attention on God's purpose for saving men. The purpose for saving men was to demonstrate His eternal righteousness and His holy character. And so let me ask you a question as we close. This is the demonstration of God's righteousness, Christian. Is the demonstration of God's righteousness central to your life and living? Does your life demonstrate the righteousness in God and redeeming you to Him? This morning, do you know Jesus Christ is your Redeemer? If you don't, I would love. I would love to sit down and show you how you can know for certain from the Word of God that you have been redeemed. Heavenly Father, thank you for demonstrating your righteousness through our redemption. Lord, help us to have eyes to see things from your perspective. We look back on history, in this case on Calvary. Many times we describe it and we look at it from the perspective of our need. And we need salvation. But in this me world that we live in, sometimes we allow our theology to, To be predicated on our need, on our things, on our situation. And Lord, as as we would rightly be right to give you thanks for the provision of our need, help us to see that the Scriptures, in this passage particularly, point everything to the display of righteousness. Yes, we've been saved. But we've been saved without the, the... the marring of your righteousness. In a million years, we could have never come up with a more marvelous plan than what you have displayed for all of mankind. May you be praised through our salvation, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.